Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We just want to keep everybody up on the literature, and to do that, we're willing to spoon-feed you all of that research. Now, let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to be covering. First off, does my kid have herpes? Second, low flow versus a lot of flow for COVID. Third, long-term outcomes for non-operative appendicitis. Fourth, oh goody, <laughs> another PE score. And then fifth, fewer and fewer reasons to do an LP for subarachnoid hemorrhage. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the verbose John Kerducky, Cliff Freeman, Rebecca Breed, Graham Van Shake, and Clay Smith. Without further ado, here's the first article titled Predictors of Invasive Herpes Simplex Virus Infection in Young Infants out of the Journal of Pediatrics. All right, so when neonates get sick, just, yeah, I mean, that's terrifying. One of the deadliest things that they could get sick of is herpes, HSV, where mortality can be as high as 85% without treatment. So missing it, ah, bad news bears. On the other hand, we can't just work up every kid for HSV just because they're sick, we'll run out of money, and kids will never leave the hospitals. So, I mean, I suppose we could treat everybody, but acyclovir does have a small risk of AKI, and that's just really not very sophisticated. You know what we need are risk tools to stratify these kids. Now, I know, I know there are a lot of risk tools already, but hear me out. Risk tools are really just kind of like your pretest probability. And I know you like running tests. In order to run tests, or at least in order to justify running tests, you need a pretest probability. So also, if we don't step up our game for risk assessments, then it's going to be all the more easy for computers to replace us in the near future. So these things are important. This study was a case control study nested within a 23-center retrospective cohort study to examine infants less than 60 days old presenting with concern for CNS infection. They took those patients and then calculated odds ratios for predictive variables and then used those to make a risk calculator for invasive HSV infection. Simple as math. Here's a few things they looked at, like the presence of vesicular rash, which had an adjusted odds ratio of 74. But let's be honest, it's rarely going to be that obvious in real life. Other things which were not as predictive, but still pretty predictive, were things like seizures at home and age less than 14 days. They used eight such factors to make their score. If you were deemed high risk by this score, the authors said that that was a good cutoff point for deciding to test for HSV. That said, the sensitivity of that was only 96%, and the specificity was only 40%. With numbers like that, I think this risk score would probably find more clinical use as just a backup to what you already decided you were going to do if you weren't going to test this patient. It's not a great way to use clinical decision rules, but the numbers here just aren't good enough to be a surefire test. But maybe it could improve after validation. In a spoonful, a risk stratification score for HSV infections in neonates now exists. And once validated, it could help you in decision making about testing for this possibly deadly disease. Now the second article titled Effect of High Flow Oxygen Therapy versus Conventional Oxygen Therapy on Invasive Mechanical Ventilation and Clinical Recovery in Patients with Severe COVID-19, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. I think by now it's become probably standard practice to give COVID patients, and honestly most people, a trial of high flow nasal cannula to see how they do on that before progressing to intubating them. The idea of course here is that we'd like to intubate as few patients as possible. 
So then the pandemic has really made high-flow nasal cannula quite popular. I think it's good to hear about the evidence behind what we're doing every now and then, though, so this is a nice study to have. This is a randomized, open-label clinical trial on emergency department and ICU patients with COVID-19 who had severe features. They were randomized to either high-flow nasal cannula or conventional oxygen therapy with just normal nasal cannulas or masks. The patients randomized to high-flow oxygen were less likely to be intubated over the following 28 days. A third less likely. That's a lot of patients. They were also more likely to have sustained clinical recovery within 28 days. 78% versus 71%. 7% difference. Not bad. But there was not a change in mortality. So this doesn't seem to be saving lives. It would definitely be more comfortable for the patients, though. And let's be honest, it's probably less resources. In a spoonful, we've been doing the right thing, so, you know, carry on. Treating patients with severe COVID-19 with high-flow nasal cannula is better than conventional oxygen therapy. Third article, Antibiotics versus Appendectomy for Acute Appendicitis, Longer-Term Outcomes out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Hey, so do you remember the CODA trial? No, don't worry, I also forgot the name. The CODA trial showed that antibiotics were non-inferior to surgery for appendicitis at 30 days. But while we care about the next 30 days, mainly because it gets our patients out of the emergency department, the patients probably don't care that much about just 30 days if they're going to need surgery right after that. So let's see how our patients fared over the next four years. The follow-up data showed that patients who were treated with antibiotics, well, 40% of them had their appendix removed by one year, 46 by two years, and then there was stable at 49% at three and four years. Surgery was more common if these patients had an appendicolith. To dig into the weeds a little bit, we see that by two years, 14% of those who were treated with antibiotics were treated with a second course of antibiotics, and about half of those went on to have their appendices removed. Overall, this actually all looks pretty good, especially for something that we used to think was just a surgical problem. And now half of patients can probably get away with just antibiotics? That's amazing. Or at least, uh, let's be, it sounds amazing. The loss to follow-up in this study was enormous. So it's hard to take everything at face value. By two years, they were only able to collect data from less than 60% of participants. And by four years, they were down to just 5%. That really makes it hard to draw conclusions from all of this. This is probably more like, I'd say, hypothesis generating than anything. In a spoonful, if we look four years out from the CODA trial, we see that about 50% of patients who were treated originally with antibiotics for their appendicitis end up needing an appendectomy. This is actually a higher amount than pooled data from other trials, but with such bad rates of loss to follow-up, there is a big risk of bias. Then we have the fourth article titled Development and Validation of a Prognostic Tool, Pulmonary Embolism Short-Term Clinical Outcomes Risk Estimation, PE Score, out of plus one. I know we teased that this was just going to be another boring old PE risk score, but this one actually offers something new, so hear me out. We're all familiar with PE risk scores that tell us when to test for a PE. Wells, of course, is the most common. Let's get past that, though. Let's move past diagnosis. Let's say we've already diagnosed them. We've already done our scans. We want to know which of these patients are going to get really sick. So which of them can we send home? To help decide, we already have the PESI, SPESI, and HESTIA criteria for this purpose. But all of those risk scores leave out a critical piece of information. How is the right ventricle doing? If you're at all worried about these patients, then hopefully you're going to get your POCUS probe and you're going to put it on that patient to look at their right ventricle. How could we leave out such an important piece of information? 
so let's try using it. These authors prospectively collected a data set of 900 patients and then whittled down more than 100 variables to just 9 to make their score. The primary outcome was a composite outcome of death and clinical deterioration within 5 days of the original index visit where the PE was diagnosed. Now that they made up their scoring tool, they collected up another 800 patients the same way for validation. If you want to use this tool to try to send people home, then you can use zero points as your cutoff, and this gives you a negative predictive value of 98% using this tool. Honestly, it's pretty good, or it sounds pretty good, but there are still 8% of patients with a score of zero who had the primary outcome, even if none of them died. If you use a cutoff of five points to then define high risk, this gives you a positive predictive value of 91%. And that's great and all, but 100% of patients with a score of 6, just one more than 5, all of these patients had the primary outcome. So we're just one point off from that. Debatably, the best part of this study was that there was no flashy stuff. They just called it PE score. Simple, yet effective. This would still need more validation and implementation studies, though. In a spoonful, a risk score called the PE score may be on the horizon for predicting short-term outcomes of PEs. And lastly, we have the fifth article titled Sensitivity of Modern Multi-Slice CT for Subarachnoid Hemorrhage in Incremental Time Points After Headache Onset, a 10-Year Analysis out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Ooh, I like this topic. Let's just cut into it. So you think your patient has a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Well, then the traditional teaching is that if you couldn't get that CT within six hours of their headache starting, that you need to do an LP to truly rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. But as scanners have gotten better and better, well, we've called into question this timeline. If we could push that timeline out farther, then this would benefit honestly everybody. And don't forget that LPs aren't entirely benign. They can cause headaches on their own, and they have a lot of false positives. This trial was a retrospective study from a single center spanning 10 years. They used modern multi-slice CT scanners for these studies, and their interest was in both aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhages and subarachnoid hemorrhages of any kind. They subcategorized the patients based on when they got their CT from symptom onset. And if it wasn't clear, then they defaulted to assuming it was longer durations, even though this would decrease their sensitivity. Now, for aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, the sensitivity of these CT scans was 100% all the way out to 24 hours. It was 99.6% at 72 hours and still 98.7% at 4 days. That's pretty darn good. The sensitivities for subarachnoid hemorrhages of any kind were slightly lower, only 99.3% at 24 hours and 99% at 4 days. But that's still 99.3% at 24 hours. So... This was retrospective data, and they relied on a final diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage to identify these patients, so that could definitely introduce some bias. All the same, though, you can use this to inform your practice and to fuel shared decision-making with your patients. In a spoonful, in a retrospective study using modern CT scanners, 100% of aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhages were detected on CT up to 24 hours from symptom onset. Alright, so what did we learn today? Honestly, I probably ought to open MD Calc more often when I'm on shift. Here we present to you a risk score for HSV infections in neonates. Being high risk was 96% sensitive for an HSV infection. Second, high-flow nasal cannula is indeed doing well for your severe COVID-19 patients. It decreases the amount of patients requiring intubation, as well as more having recovered by 28 days. It didn't 
change mortality in this study, though. Third, based on very small follow-up numbers, the CODA trial four years later shows about half of patients having been treated with antibiotics originally for their appendicitis end up undergoing surgery. But, like I said, there was a lot of loss to follow-up. Fourth, a PE score that actually takes into account what was really going to kill your patient, right ventricular dysfunction. The PE score helps predict short-term outcomes of PEs. And from the last article, LP is probably still standard of care for working up subarachnoid hemorrhages past six hours. But that's almost definitely kind of on the way out, I'd say. Given how much better CT scanners are these days, we should probably be able to push that time point out by at least a few hours in the next couple of years. Just need some guideline updates. And that wraps us up for this week. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.